Okay, the, um, the Bible verses from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, and that's the NIV translation. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. But a body you prepared for me, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law... Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And when these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Well, I wonder, did you, when you left this morning, I left the house this morning, did you lock the door? Mm. (laughs) Or did you turn the oven on or turn the oven off, whichever one you were supposed to do? Have you locked your car? It's a bit risky me asking these things now, because you're going to be distracted for the whole sermon now, wondering if you'd done that thing you might have forgotten. You can go crackers worrying about things like that, can't you? I had um, a friend at high school, um, and she'd been running late, ironing his skirt at the last minute, went to brush her teeth, ran for the bus, realised it was a bit drafty, because she'd left a skirt on the ironing board. (laughs) Or if that kind of thing doesn't make you anxious, maybe it should. You know, maybe you're too confident that you've got everything, all the I's dotted and T's crossed. 
Um, for example, there was an exam, a couple at um, Trinity Church Brighton when we first went there, had two preschool-aged kids, busy family, things going on, stuff to do after church. So they came in two cars. It was only when they arrived that they both thought the other one was bringing the youngest child. And the youngest child was still at home. <laughs> They'd come without one of their children. Thankfully, the neighbor babysat through the window. It was all good. Uh, the original hearers of this letter to Hebrews, that, so they're Christians who are converted from a Jewish background. Our author's trying to help them with their uneasy feeling that they've forgotten something or that there's something missing. A niggling doubt that there's uh, something more they need to be doing to be in right relationship with God. In the face of coming under pressure for being a Christian, there's a danger that they'll give up on just trusting in Jesus and go back to the soothing familiarity of Jewish worship, of offering animal sacrifices to be right with God. There's a danger they'll return to a misplaced confidence in stuff that they do and miss out on true relationship with God. And so for us, we, we might not be looking to sacrifice animals as far as I know, but we can so easily slip back into being religious, can't we? Into doing what we do, serving or doing evangelism even, doing good things, but to kind of earn our way to God. Because the idea that we're completely right with God without us bringing something to the table can seem too good to be true. And today's passage brings us to the end of the section of the letter. Since chapter 8, we've been seeing how Jesus has brought us into a new covenant, a new deal, um, a new contract between us and God and that regulates how we relate to each other. A new deal that we can enter because Jesus has won our forgiveness on the cross. A new deal that gives us direct access to God. Now, I don't know, when you were hearing the reading just then, were you thinking, oh, didn't we do this last week? You know, it's... A lot of it's quite the same, isn't it? Well, the flow of what the author of Hebrews is doing is this. So chapter 8 was the promise of the new relationship. Well, then chapter 9 was like, oh, that seems a bit too good to be true. How does all that work? So chapter 9 was the nuts and bolts of how, how it is that we are completely forgiven, why Jesus' sacrifice works. And there's a bit more of that in chapter 10. And now chapter 10 kind of draws it all together. And the emphasis today is on the benefits for us, the benefits for the believer. So verse 10 is the headlines, we have been made holy. And verse 14, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Holy and perfect. Is that how you think of yourself? You know, you imagine introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Colin, husband of three. Sorry, husband. <laughs> no, no. Sorry. Father of three, husband of one. I love Man City and I'm holy. In fact, I'm perfect. <laughs> Moving on now from the Father, are you okay? So today's passage is a, a little bit more about what's in it for us. And yet, I hope that we'll see by the end how that actually takes the attention off us and back onto Jesus who deserves it. So three chunks that we'll look at. 
Um, first of all, verses 1 to 4 is kind of awkward reminders. Then we'll look at what God really wants and how his promise is fulfilled. Awkward reminders, what God really wants, promise fulfilled. So first, awkward reminders. Our author sums up what we've been learning so far about the old covenant worship, the old way of doing things. Verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So the old covenant worship of offering sacrifices wasn't the real thing. It was a shadow. And as we saw in the kids' talk, shadows are helpful. They give us a rough idea of what to expect from the real thing. Uh, So the old covenant tabernacle practices... They helped us know loads of things. They helped us know that sin was really serious, deadly. Helped us know that God is holy and pure and can't have anything to do with sin. But also that he's merciful, full of, wants to offer us grace if we really want it. But the old covenant ways only ever pointed and alluded to what could really save them. So it was good for its time. Uh, So the contrast is ritual cleaning with the blood of sacrificed animals meant people could approach that sort of smidgen of God's glorious presence in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle once a year. Made them sort of ritually clean. But it's only if our consciences are clean, only if we've got no sin to worry about anymore, that we can come before God and truly approach him in personal relationship. And animal sacrifices couldn't do that. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the very fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated year after year showed this. Verse 2, otherwise, would they, not stop being offered, off, would, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. For those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. So it's like every morning I'm woken up by this kind of rustling sound, crackling sound. And it's Sharon reaching for her thyroid medication. Let's take her thyroid tablet every morning, 7 a.m. And that tablet's great. It does the job, doesn't it? Normal thyroid function for that levels for that day. But even whilst it gives you that benefit as you take it, it's also a daily reminder that your thyroid's not working properly. You're not cured. It's a blessing to have those tablets, but they're also a warning at the same time. The old covenant law was a blessing, how to obey God and act out your faith, adequate for its time, but a warning, because it had to happen over and over, that sin still needed dealing with once and for all, if we were ever be able to be with God in right relationship. It was a treatment, but not a cure. So the warning for the audience of the Hebrews, the original audience, and for us, is don't try alternative medicine to cure your sin problem. God's provided the cure in Jesus, and it's the ultimate folly to know that and return to trying to save yourself through religiously practicing good works trying to do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad. That's not what God wants. Which brings us to what God really wants, our second heading, what God really wants. So 
God no longer wants animal sacrifices. He wants Jesus' sacrifice and your trust in it. So that's what the quote, the quote is um, from Psalm 40. And even though it's written before Jesus' birth, it's attributed as Jesus' words. So that's how the Bible works. You know, God inspired human blokes using all their faculties, their personalities, their circumstances. They wrote it, but inspired by him. So God has his words written as scripture. So verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. What God really wanted was perfect obedience, doing his will. And what God really wanted was a sacrifice that really did match the cost of all our sin. For a life to be offered that really was a fair, just swap for the punishment that we deserve. So that God, in his grace, could offer us forgiveness, offer us a clear conscience, saying you're not guilty of that sin anymore, without untruthfully just brushing you under the carpet and saying, oh, it doesn't really matter, don't worry about it. Jesus came to do God's will, and he was perfectly, 100% faithful in doing that. Now, we get Jesus was sacrificed for us, but I wonder, have you ever wondered, well, why didn't that happen like, I don't know, when he was, you know, he could have been killed by Herod with all those other two-year-olds, couldn't he? Why didn't, why isn't he sacrificed like that? Because it's because Jesus submitted in going to his suffering and death on the cross, yes, but he submitted in much more ways than that. So verse 5, a body you prepared, that's alluding to the fact that Jesus submitted to being born human in the first place. Contrast is, you know, Adam in the Garden of Eden seeks equality with God. Jesus, who is God, uh, it says in Philippians like this, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He submitted to that. He was baptized by John the Baptist, not to wash away his own sin, but to identify with us, to throw his lot in with ours. He was tempted in the wilderness like God's people, but unlike God's people, he remained faithful. And then his whole ministry demonstrated that he was God's king with authority over life and death, over the natural world, supernatural world, and yet submits to suffering and death. So this life lived in full obedience. His submitting to suffering, betrayal, and death. All this means that his sacrifice, given voluntarily, really does cover the cost. And because Jesus is God the Son, his sacrifice counts not just for one or a handful, but for anyone who puts their trust in him. And the results for us when we do trust him, we're made holy and made perfect. Made holy and made perfect. So verse 10 says, And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Verse 14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So let's explain that. First, we're made holy. Um, verse 14 there, it says, those who are being made holy. It's, it's not the idea of you're not holy and gradually you're going to become holy. It's more um, the idea of being made holy and continuing being made, so made holy, remaining permanently holy. Okay? Permanently holy. That, believe it or not, brothers and sisters, describes you. But what does holy mean, though? I mean, we used to, um, buildings or shrines being called holy or consecrated, aren't we? And it, all it means is that they're set apart to be used for by God. Well, now it's us who are set aside to be used for his service, to belong to him. So here we are, we're a, we're a bunch of holy places. Here's um, St. Cora on the front row and uh, St. Colin. There. This side of Jesus' return, we will still sin. We will still do unholy things. But there's a detail I didn't pick up on last week. But in chapter 9, verse 26, Jesus has appeared once for all, when? At the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus' sacrifice for us is offered at the end of everything, when our full record is in. And had it, uh, that's when Christ has presented his sacrifice and had it accepted as paying the price. So you can't surprise Jesus with any new sins that he didn't know about. It's all paid for. And so a positionally sort of thing, our status-wise, and in a spiritual sense, even now, we are holy. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, puts it like this. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's our spiritual reality, hidden in Jesus, holy. So we're made holy, and verse 14 says we are made perfect forever. So what does that mean? Well, this is a sense of the word perfect that we don't use as often in English. Um, the idea of completing something so the idea of having a goal and achieving it so what goal have we been brought to achieving by trusting in jesus uh, what well, hebrews 7 verse 18 said this the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to god draw near to god and then in chapter 9, verse 9, um, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. And that clear, the clear of the conscience there is the same word. It's being made perfect. So to bring that together, our perfection goal is drawing near to God to worship him with a clear conscience. That's what everyone was made for. Uh, worshipping God, not because he's like some grumpy Greek or Roman God that's vain and needs worshipping for power or something like that. Now, worshipping the true living God is its kind of fully getting who God is and what he's like and just responding with him to him in the way that deserves um, from the heart to give ourselves over to him. 
So it's not the kind of coerced worship, it's knowing who God is and responding. It's like um, when we lived in England, we, one autumn we went to some wetlands where there's thousands upon thousands of wild birds ar- um, arriving from, from the north hour by hour. Every so often, they kind of some more would arrive and there'd be a flurry and you'd get about 10,000 geese taking off at once and honking at you and just have this wall of sound hit you. And you couldn't help but just go, wow. Or one time I was walking in Snowdonia, North Wales, along this ridge. There was this almighty noise. And I found myself looking down on an RAF tornado flying along the valley floor. You could see the top of the pilot's head through the window. Wow. Nobody had to tell me to say wow. It was just amazing. We're made to be, we're made to be amazed into worship, knowing amazing relationship with our amazing God. See, everyone's following some gospel, some message of good news or other. So our, the culture that we live in, our culture's gospel goes something like, your best life is to be found searching deep within yourself, finding who you truly are, and doing your best to express who you are at all costs. And that any unhappiness or anxiety you experience is because your true self is being repressed. The trouble is, anyone with even half an idea of what a rat bag they are knows that that's a recipe for disaster. And like for the old covenant priests, it's exhausting and futile. So verse 11, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It's exhausting. Trying to deal with life in any other way is exhausting because it, it might make things seem all right temporarily, but it doesn't deal with the root cause of our problems. Jesus' gospel says... Look deep inside yourself and you'll find the source of all your problems, your prideful, sinful rebellion. It's going against what you were made for, enjoying relationship with God and worshipping him. But if we let go of living for ourselves and trust, trust Jesus with our life, living for him instead, well, he's keeps his promises and deals with all the relational fallout of our rejecting God so that we can have the most fulfilling life there is. Drawing near to God, worshipping him, because that's what we were given life for. So perfection forever means forever being able to draw near to God in relational perfection. And that's all possible because Jesus gave us his life of perfect relationship with God, gave that up to save ours. And all this means God's promise is fulfilled. Our last section, promise fulfilled. So back in chapter 8, our author began this section by quoting the prophecy given by Jeremiah of a new covenant, a new deal. And it's quoted again at the end of, of our section today to kind of bookend it. So verse, uh, quoted more briefly, verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies us about this. First he says, 
This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their, laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So he's put this at the end again um, to say that all that we've just looked at shows that God has fulfilled these promises in Jesus. God has put it in our hearts and minds to want what he wants. We've been reborn and we've been rewired to be more like our brother Jesus. We've been made perfect so that we can know, truly know, relationally, through his word in the Bible, through prayer, through his spirit, um, bringing that home to us. We can know God personally. Knowing God will mean we want to live for him in the here and now, and that will make this life much harder, but it will make it more fulfilling because it lines up with our true reason for being. So because we live with God's light in us, there's no need for shadows anymore, no need to offer sacrifices. Because we're already seen as holy and perfect. That's why it's accurate to say Christianity isn't really a religion, it's a relationship that turns religion on its head. So let's think about some of the implications for us now. And I've, I've arranged these roughly on lines of our purposes that we have for our church, for our maturity. So it means all of us believers here are on a level playing field. Okay, Whether you are a brand new Christian or I'm trying to think of a mature Paul Harrington, say, all of us have the same access to God. So when we talk about trying to mature or grow in our faith, we don't mean trying to get closer to God because we're already, all of us, as close to God as, as we want to be. All we mean is helping one another to grow up now, grow up in the here and now ever more into what we already are, what spiritually we already are and will be completely when Jesus returns, made perfect and holy. So that's what we're in about maturing, is, is becoming who we are. Knowing that you're holy, just get on with it. Uh, for our mission, for our evangelism, it means that we're not sharing Jesus to win brownie points with him. It's not, we're not sharing Jesus because we feel that we ought to. It's because we've got God's spirit live, giving us his heart for the lost. We share Jesus because we want, to, we want people to know what we know. The goodness of knowing right relationship with God through Jesus. We share Jesus because God reached out to us whilst we were still his enemies and shaking his, our fists at him. For our magnification, well, let's zero in on our music here in church. It means we're not singing together to get into God's presence. We're, we're singing to celebrate and declare that we're already in his presence and that he's in us. And worship is something we do with all of our lives, but coming together in song 
Uh, that kind of unifies us in a way that's difficult to do any other way and gives us a kind of sneak peek of how we'll be in heaven. And we sing to God and we sing to each other to teach and encourage one another in how we're already perfect and holy. Um, In communion, it means that we're very clear when we share communion together that we're not offering a sacrifice. We're remembering Jesus' sacrifice already made is all the sacrifice that any of us will ever need. And it's the only way we can be made perfect and holy. For our ministry, for our serving one another in church, it means we're not doing that. We're not serving here for God's approval, but because we're already approved and want to help everyone know and be encouraged in that peace. When we turn up at church, despite really not feeling like it, it's because um, it's the loving thing to do. And it's, we're loving as we f- first being loved, out of joy, joyful, wanting to give joyful honor and thanks to God. And we know we could drop all our serving, and it wouldn't mean any of us were any less close to God. Don't drop all your serving, please don't do that. But that's not why you're close to God. It means uh, for our welcoming, our membership, it means we go out of our way to try and welcome people into church and do our best to make you feel at home and integrate you into things because Jesus did everything, even while we were still God's enemies, Jesus did everything to make it so that we could be at home in God's heavenly sanctuary forever. Uh, I think most of you met my old boss, John Warner. He works for Bus Church Aid now. His advice to me when we were planning and launching this church, just keep it all about Jesus. Just keep going on about Jesus. And that's good advice, isn't it? And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Anything else you might come up with to, to make you okay with God, to make a fulfilling life, anything else you might come up with will fall short. Any other motivations you might come up with for doing good stuff will fall short. They won't satisfy. In the end, it's not about us and appeasing our feelings of guilt. Because thanks to Jesus, objectively, we aren't guilty anymore. So instead, we're free to get on with worshipping and serving God enjoying personal relationship with him. Yeah, Steamer and Kristen put me on the stop spot earlier on saying, what's the big idea of your talk? How do you summarize it? And that's what I said. We're already holy and perfect. Just get on with it. Later on, we're going to sing uh, an old hymn, and can, and can It Be? And this Verses in there, which sums things up well. I'll say this is our closing prayer. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amen.